0: Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, and Dr. Pietro Bortoletto, Interactive Associate-in-Chief.
1: Welcome, everyone, to the Fertility and Sterility On-Air Podcast. It's February 2023. Excited to be here today, as usual, with the full team. So, Kurt, Eve, and Pietro, good morning. It's very early today. How are
2: you? (laughs) Good morning, everybody. Nice to see you.
3: Good morning, and it's an hour earlier here, so nice to see you too.
2: Never too early to have a discussion about the good science and fertility and sterility is what I always say. That is right. So we are now on season
1: three of FNS On Air. We're the February 2023, volume 119, number two in the print journal. So as always, we have a nice views and reviews. So this was put together by editorial editor Nanette Santoro And it's on FSH, the Goldilocks Hormone, Too Little, Too Much, or Just Right. And she has uh, four different papers, actually five, that were put together uh, that talk about FSH and LH action. So especially if you're a fellow or if you just want a good review, I highly recommend that you uh, read these papers. They're very, very insightful and educational. The Inklings comes from Michael Eisenberg, also another editorial editor, on the intergenerational Economics of Infertility, Childbearing, and Assisted Reproduction. So this was a very dispassionate and sort of cold way to look at why we should be able to do ART so it doesn't pull on the heartstrings or doing what's right for the patients. Just imagine in your mind Dame Judy Dench or Dame Maggie Smith, whatever British matriarch you want, saying be dispassionate in your judgment, Uh, James Bond, and and this is what this article is. So it's just very much breaking down the economics of why we should be applying it. I almost read it like a white paper that could be used uh, at a governmental or NGO level for why we should have fertility benefits. So as always, read those. It's very, very good content. But Pietro, we're going to dive right in. We have the seminal contribution this month, fresh versus frozen embryo transfer and safety and outcomes. I know this is something that's uh, important and near, dear to your heart. Tell us about this article, the seminal one for the month.
2: Well, somehow I got assigned to the seminal contribution this this month, which is typically a Kurt Barnhart task. But I guess since Kurt is the senior author on this paper, it had to go to someone else. And well, I have the unenviable task about telling Kurt, Eve, and Micah about this paper, but also our readers, this paper, Kurt, as I mentioned, you are senior author in this month's FNS, but also my dear old friend, Dr. Marissa Steinberg-Weiss, who was a Northwestern resident, Penn fellow, and now back on faculty at the University of Pennsylvania as the lead author. And the question that you and your co-authors are trying to tackle is the age-old question, which is better, fresh or frozen embryo transplant? as it relates to singleton live birth rate. We all know that RCTs are really hard to do in general, but they're particularly rare in our due to barriers from federal research funding and many of the unique ethical concerns related to reproduction. As a result, many of the big questions in our field, like is fresh or frozen better, are commonly answered by observation large national ART databases, from, the, from SART, the CDC, and other big uh, clinic-level data sets. While useful, there are always concerns about the quality of these data sets, particularly the effects of unmeasured covariates and the potential for confounding by indication when trying to be useful for. While these databases do a great job at collecting data points like age, AMH levels, fertility diagnosis, these data sets are less good at measuring what the authors in this study called quote-unquote inherent fertility, or the probability a woman has of ever achieving a pregnancy. Inherent fertility has the potential to impact the type of fertility treatment one receives, but also the outcome of said treatment. By definition, it's a confounder, and when not accounted for in these large data sets, your source of unmeasured confounding. Now what Dr. Weiss and Dr. Barnhart did was they looked at data from the National ART Surveillance System from the CDC to answer the fresh versus frozen question using both the traditional analytic approaches that all of us are very familiar with to address confounding, as well as a novel dynamic model to account for quote-unquote inherent fertility. The study focused on women undergoing egg retrieval and single embryo transfer in 2016 or 2017 who were between the ages of 20 and 34 years of age. They excluded PGTA cycles and only included cycles in which four or more embryos were generated. So, as a whole, a very good prognosis cohort of women by design. The primary outcome here was singleton live birth rate. There were around 6,000 fresh cycles and 2,000 frozen cycles that were eligible for analysis. Now, without diving too much into the weeds, because I think if you have a statistical mind and want to learn a little bit more about this dynamic model, you should read the method section of this paper. The results here are that the crude analysis of the results showed no difference in the singleton live birth rate between fresh and frozen, and this outcome persisted even after adjusting for confounding, utilizing Poisson regression and propensity score analysis, quote-unquote, the traditional methods for adjusting for confounding. And this it was a finding that was largely in agreement with previous meta-analyses on this topic. what the authors went and did here as kind of their exploratory and the novel aspect of this paper is that they performed additional analysis using this so-called so-called dynamic model that controlled for inherent fertility which again accounts for longitudinal data across multiple embryo transfer attempts the point estimates for inherent fertility were not different between two groups and when analyzed using the dynamic model there was again no difference in singleton live birth rate between the fresh and frozen groups at face value you may be wondering Okay, so they found the same thing with and without their new dynamic model, but what the dynamic modeling added by nature of including an estimate of inherent fertility for each patient is that it adjusted for a major source of unmeasured confounding that could have been mediating the results of the traditional regression model. Now, Kurt, before I ask you to talk a little bit more about why controlling for inherent fertility as a confounding variable is important and when and where it should be used, I want to point out a few methodologic choices in the study that perhaps limit its generalizability a bit. And these were points that were raised by Dr. Marsh and her accompanying inkling. One, by design, this was an exceptionally good cohort of women. Young, no ovulatory dysfunction, no uterine factor. They produced four more embryos in their index retrieval cycle, which may not necessarily be extrapolated to the average patient who's a bit older. Fresh embryo transfers because they've previously failed um, frozen attempts. We excluded PGTA cycles. Again, with the trend towards more and more PGTA, limits a little bit of the generalizability of this cohort. And finally, the um, CDC data that was used doesn't provide information about the indication for FET. Was there a concern for OHSS? Was there a premature rise in uh, progesterone? Was there an unexpected lining issue? All are things that which are unmeasured could potentially be confounding a relationship. Now, while the answer to this question is certainly helpful, the real value added to this paper, again, is this concept of adjusting for inherent fertility when using database studies. Kurt, we have the benefit of having you on the podcast. So I want to ask you, should we all be doing this when we're using large data sets and are there instances for modeling?
4: Thanks, Pietro. That was a nice summary of the paper. Um, This was an exciting paper to put together. And I think the main highlights of why we put it together. Um, The idea was that we were to replicate a randomized trial. If large used in the future instead of of randomized trials. So if you could get rid of um, as much of the confounding as possible, then you could get close randomized. What was that, you know, we, people have subsequent cycles. And if you fail in one cycle, it necessarily mean that you're different than a person that that um, succeeded. It might though, because there is a certain amount of people that are just not gonna get pregnant. And, and how do you identify them? You know, we can get somewhat close with AMH and age and the, the general confoundings, but there might be something that interestingly is morphing into what we call um, recurrent implantation failure, where there's a group, there's some women in, that you're just gonna treat and they're just are not gonna get pregnant. So this was blasphemy when talking to my fellow statisticians, because once you have an intervention, like anything afterwards is going to be, you know, somehow um, influenced by that intervention. You can't look in the future. You can only look backwards. And I strongly argue that that's not true, because with this relative serial things, you can look forward and say that there's some people in each group that are not going to get pregnant. And you know what? If you could find out that one group is different in the other that's confounding. And then if you can control for that, you can get a lot closer to the so-called randomized trial. So that's what we tried to do. The reason it's not generalizable is because we tried to replicate a very specific randomized trial on this topic that had very specific inclusion and exclusion criteria to get to that. And by the way, we got an answer that um, I guess is classic in epidemiology. The randomized trial was a little bit exaggerated in its findings. The trial we replicated found a relative risk of 1.24 or or something like that where we didn't find a difference so that gets to some of your questions here the inherent fertility i think is is kind of neat and it, but the paper showed two things it said one you can measure it and we came up with an estimate around is interestingly similar to the um, pregnancy rate or the lack of a pregnancy rate of <laughs> embryos even though we didn't have <clears throat> eploid we found out that they weren't um imbalanced so that, that we didn't need to control for it. So in the future, maybe you can use this to control for imbalances in databases. What surprised us the most about this paper, though, was when you restricted the population from the general population to the good prognosis patient confounding. So um, again, if you're asking a scientific question, does this intervention work, you really need to make the two groups as true as possible. And if the if the group is good prognosis, yeah, that's not a big difference. If it's... Not good prognosis, well, first of all, no one's really proposing that it's better to freeze an embryo in a not good prognosis patient, but that's another study. That's why I generalize issues in this study.
3: So, Kurt, first of all, I want to commend Marissa, commend you on a really elegantly and well-done study. I guess my question is, are we now at a crossroad where studies are going to shift from being RCTs to more large database emulation of RCTs Due to the challenges in NIH funding surrounding embryo research and due to the challenges of funding overall, like are RCTs going to become, I don't want to say obsolete, but are they going to become less common? And are we going to see more of this statistical modeling of an RCT? What do you think?
4: Yeah, I do. I, I think there's lots of reasons RCTs are really, really hard to do. They're ethically challenged. They're expensive. So um, if it's true that emulating an RCT gives you some good value, again, it might not be the perfect study. That does, that's going to advance, make us allow us to make decisions. It's the you know it's the big data wave. Uh, whether the big data wave works in um, the CDC works only in Google is yet to be determined but um i think that's where people are going to go and I, I need for this there's an excellent statistic Garrett, i'm sorry glenn satin who um was able to model this and, and dimitri Kisson is obviously wonderful to work with
1: well i'm so glad we have smart people like the senior author uh to t- explain this and you Pietro, i think i understand it about twice as good as i did despite spending an hour with it last night this is um complex for me to wrap my brain around but i, I appreciate your presentation of that that was very helpful All right, Kurt, we're coming right back to you. Uh, moving on to the andrology section of the journal, we have an article on male contraceptive development. Um, what did
4: you have this month? So thank you, Micah. Yeah, let's change gears completely. This, this is a fun paper because I hope I'm going to make you think a little bit. And the findings of this paper aren't going to change your practice, but I, I hope it will change the way you look at things. This is a paper that essentially looks at two things, the possibility The real possibility of a male contraceptive method is closer than we think. And the second one is this need for simplification and the use of direct-to-consumer tests. So, this paper is Male Contraceptive Development Monitoring, Effective Spermatogenesis Suppression Utilizing a User-Controlled Sperm Concentration Test Compared with Standard Semen Analysis by Dr. Liu is the first author and Dr. Christina Wang. So this is based at a group at a UCLA that is pioneering what is now a Phase IIb male contraceptive study and they found a really nice niche. This Phase 2 NIH-sponsored contraceptive study is a multi-center style, actually it's international, there's uh, there's almost 30 sites across the world, and Penn's lucky enough to be one of those sites, although I had no participation in this particular paper. The contraceptive is working on nesterone and testosterone as a gel that a male applies on their shoulder in one pump a day to basically suppress spermatogenesis. So it's the nesterone that we're all familiar with, strong progesterone, suppressing the hypothalamic pituitary, in this case, testis axis and local concentrations of testosterone. But then you add back exogenous testosterone to allow normal male reproductive functions and other characteristics. But the added back testosterone doesn't isn't high enough to get into the local testis environment to restart spermatogenesis. So recognize this is going to be hopefully available, well, not soon as far as drug development goes, but it, but it actually is working very, very well in the trials. So the idea was, listen, it takes Probably a good eight to 10 weeks to get males suppressed. And then to see if it works, you have to do a semen analysis. And then to see if it continues to work, you have to do another semen analysis. So that's a lot of office-based semen analyses. So was there a way to basically say, can we monitor how something like this would work with a consumer test? Can I basically be on male contraceptive and say, is it good? Is it working? and what they used was an over the counter test called sperm check v test and it's similar it's a it's a lateral flow immunochromatograph test very similar to what we're used to, pregnancy tests or, or LH tests. You know, you put the sample on it, it goes up laterally through the, the thing, and then it gives you a, two lines, a control line and a positive line. And the goal was to say, can we use this to adequately mimic what we would get by doing a formal semen analysis? One of the findings that I thought was neat was we got to change the way we think. You don't need zero sperm count for this to be effective. So they took a threshold of 0.2 million as the, the threshold. Now, clinical data that I trust very much will bear out that that's probably good enough to work clinically, but this test will now tell you if you're below that threshold. So really, the test was quite simple, 38 subjects, 217 samples. They basically had people from different groups of of sperm concentrations, and they basically said, how often is the -the over-the-counter test giving you the accurate, correct test with the gold standard being the semen analysis? Um, I want to get statistical geek on you for a second. All studies, even this one, have to have some sort of semblance of a sample size or a power of calculation. And for this kind of test, what you do is you say, "What's the precision of my answer and roughly what my answer is going to be?" So they hypothesized this would be 90 percent sensitive, and they give a, um, a confidence interval around it of around six to 10 percent, and that would need, I think it was 37 subjects. Now, that's an estimate, like all studies. So they found out that they didn't have 90 percent accuracy. They actually had 98 percent accuracy. So the results were well within their estimated power. So looking at tests less than 0.2, they were 100% sensitive, 97.3 specific. And the concept that I think is most important, which is accuracy. Accuracy is basically of all the people you've predicted, how many people did you predict correctly? So it's a combination of sensitivity and specificity. It's not one or the other. You want to know just is the test reading I got accurate, meaning correct, whether it's negative or a positive test. So 98.2% accuracy is pretty darn good. Now, if it was above that threshold, the test was even better, 100% sensitive, 99% specific, and 99.5% accurate. So this was a a good test. So the reason I really like to include it in fertility and sterility is, again, it makes you think broadly. We've got new things to think about. It's a slightly different study design. And it really, I think, is a marker of the times. We have a generational sift. I think young men are open to male contraceptive. First of all, I really believe that's true, and secondly, young men—I mean, younger than me and Micah and Pietro, of course—are pulled towards, you know, simplicity. You know, an over-the-counter test rather than going into the doctor's office. So this is really laying the groundwork for, I think, transformation in medicine, which is men are going to take responsibility and they're going to have a way to check easily if it's working. And not have to go all the way back into a physician's office to do that. So again, not going to change your practice today, but think broadly. And I was really pleased that this paper could get into the journal.
1: I was shocked by the same thing you mentioned—that less than two hundred thousand they were okay with—and that that sort of shocked me because I think we probably all had IUIs where they show up, and that's the post-wash value you get. It's already there. It's already prepped. You know, she's ready for the IUI. You do it, and you know, some of them get pregnant. So. That made me feel uncomfortable. But then, when you think about natural conception, however you would Non-ART like, non ART
2: conception, yes, non
1: medically assisted conception, um, that's obviously going to be different than IUI. But I, it sounded like they modeled that on real world OCP usage. Like, if if, if a guy is less than two hundred thousand, that's roughly equivalent to the failure rate of OCPs and females. Is that?
4: Yeah, it was a little bit of a sea change to accept that you don't have to get to zero. But if you think about it, everything we do in life is there's never an absolute this cannot be designed. No contraceptive has 100% efficacy. We know that. So, you know, it shouldn't be a barrier that the male is 100%. And I think less than 200,000 sperm is going to be really, really effective. I don't want to say that we're sacrificing efficacy. I don't believe so. I think the scientists in this paper, Diana Blythe in particular, is convinced that that less than that is really talking about anecdotal pregnancy.
3: That surprised me,
1: but it makes sense. That's a great explanation. Thank you.
3: I think two points. One is, I agree, I think that you have to accept a very, very small rate of failure for the larger picture of efficacy. And number two, I think the feminist side of me is just cheering that this is truly revolutionary. I think that the contraceptive burden, although obviously there are male contraceptive devices, but the contraceptive burden from an efficacy standpoint has largely fallen on the female partner. And so- Having something like this on the horizon is life-changing.
2: The biggest issue for me for uptake for this, while I agree that an at-home test certainly is more palatable for a lot of men my age, the fact that it takes 16 to 20 weeks for you to get to that threshold where you're in the hundreds of thousands of sperm is a long time.
3: Yeah, but you use a backup method. And so that did not bother me as much. I mean, we tell women, and I don't know how true this is, but we always tell women, like, that the pill doesn't really work the first month that you take it. So theoretically, you have probably a seven or eight week lead time of contraceptive efficacy for a female if she decides early on in the preceding cycle that she's going to begin the oral contraceptive, then the subsequent months she starts the pill and the efficacy doesn't theoretically kick in until that one full month of pills have been taken. <laughs> I don't know how much of that is dogma versus reality, Probably a lot of dogma there, but I I did not see the lead time as being being problematic. I think the bigger issue, obviously, the paper was about the direct-to-consumer testing. And Kurt, I thought it was funny that you mentioned a pregnancy test because now I think the classic is a COVID test, right? And the administration of this test with putting the diluents, the drop, and then the sample, I think like people are so much more comfortable, males and females are so much more comfortable with a direct to consumer test such as that in the era since COVID. And every time I see a COVID test, especially the one that is shaped in the same way as this one, it does look like uh, an old pregnancy test. There is part of me that still gets that excited, like, aha, positive. And well, that- we're
4: getting used to th- that how we do these tests, whether whatever we're testing for, which is kind of neat. By the way, this is not the iPhone test where you put it up to the lens to see the, the sperm density. I, I've heard that sperm test at home too. So no, this is not this one. And I also wanted to end this on, we talked a little bit about the efficacy you know, under 200,000. I can't say how many pregnancies there were in this phase two trial, but let's say we never had to discuss any in the in the context of the study. So um, between the lines there, it, it, it looks like there's data that's stacking up this threshold.
1: All right. I am learning a lot today. Thank you, everyone. That's great. So we're going to move on to the assisted reproduction section. But before I do that, I want to give my shout out of the month to two of our colleagues down under Christos Venitas this week said that uh, we're doing a great job. Keep it up. He loves it on LinkedIn. And then I was having a phone call with Rob Norman uh, last week, and he says that he listens to this on the car. He listens to this while he works out. All of his colleagues down in Australia do as well. So uh, we'll see if we can't get an episode of FNS on air or Journal Club Global down to your continent soon. And we appreciate you listening to us and everyone else around the globe. Thank you. So the next article is mine and assisted reproduction, and it's from Sarah Arians and Bill Gibbons from Baylor. The is titled Endometrial Receptivity Assay Before Frozen Embryo Transfer Cycle, A Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And the authors generally do a, a very a sound methodologic meta-analysis here. They registered their trial in Prospero. Uh, the only downside to that is that they registered it five weeks after they did their literature search and analysis. So we would call that retrospectively registered. Ideally, you'd like a meta-analysis and uh, obviously a randomized controlled trial registered before any data is collected. That way you know that there's no bias in the decisions they made. That being said, I looking at the paper, I did not sense any bias because they had those five weeks uh, before they registered it. Uh, They did combine cohort studies as well as randomized trials or clinical trials in this study, and we'll talk about that at the end. Uh, They used appropriate statistics in using random effects models, and for fellows out there, I just want to take 60 seconds to review. When you look at your forest plot and you see each dot that represents the effect size of a paper, and then you see the 95% confidence interval of that effect size, and obviously they vary. Not every paper has the dot in the same place, and not every confidence interval is the same width. Now, why is that now that will determine which of these models we're going to use it could just be sampling error we could do the exact same study at the exact same place with the exact same docs and patients and still get different answers just because of sampling variation so a fixed effect model assumes that your difference in those dots is due to just sampling error. And so it really heavily weights the larger studies because they're gonna more precisely be able to estimate that. Random effects assumes that yes, these are similar studies, but they're all a little bit different. So uh, some of these ERA patients are recurrent pregnancy loss or RIF, recurrent implantation failure. Some of these are good euploid embryo transfers in young women. Like obviously these are different groups. These aren't the same thing, but we're still measuring the ERA. So we're going to summarize a group of effects around the ERA. So we're going to give bigger weight to smaller studies in the random effects models because they're each smaller studies bringing something unique that we're trying to estimate an overall effect to. I think in REI literature, I haven't seen a place where fixed effects would be appropriate. Our study are all heterogeneous enough that I think we should use random effects, and and that's what they did. Uh, They did a lot of sensitivity analyses, and I really like that. I think that's a good way to help drill down and make sure that you're not missing the answer to your question, no matter how you slice it. Overall, they had eight studies, 2,700 patients, 800 of whom had the ERA, and the rest were about 1,900 were controls. Five of these were retrospective cohorts, one prospective, one clinical trial, And one, unclear methods, although reading the abstract to that one, I think it's probably a a retrospective cohort. All the trials, even the one with unclear methodology, were rated low risk of bias by the Newcastle-Ottawa scale. That's why I don't personally like the Newcastle-Ottawa scale for measuring bias in uh, retrospective studies, because it always says they're low risk. But one, we don't even know what the methods are. And uh, they got to just choose what their treatment was. And five of them are retrospective cohorts. There's obviously bias there, uh, or risk of bias. So I, I just disagree with that. The authors point that out as well, which I thought was um, insightful. So overall, the authors found no difference in any endpoint using the endometrial receptivity assay. It didn't help with live birth, and they had over 2,000 patients. in that analysis Uh, nor any of the secondary analyses, pregnancy loss, biochemical pregnancy, clinical pregnancy. They also did sub-analyses looking at study design. Did that change anything? They looked at patients with recurrent implantation failure. There were three studies with 700 patients. That didn't change the findings. So really, no matter how they sliced it, there was no benefit to using the endometrial receptivity assay. The authors conclude the findings of the current meta-analysis did not reveal a significant change in the rate of pregnancy after IVF. Using ERA, it's not clear whether ERA can increase pregnancy. And I agree with that. My only thing is, I think you can say it's stronger. I think you can flip that. It almost sounds like it's not clear whether it works or not. And so some people might say, well, let's keep on using it until we know it doesn't. Whereas I would say there is no evidence that there is benefit to utilize this intervention. And I think that's pretty clear now 2,700 cycles, that's quite a bit, plus the randomized control trial from January. The commentary was great by Allison Bosch and Heather Hip from Emory. They do a very good job of explaining the history of the ERA, how it works, what's the current evidence. They highlighted the fact that, despite that. On the website, this ERA test, before they took this information down, had been used over 150,000 times. That was about a year ago. So we might be talking about 200,000 times this test has been used now. And that's just from one of the companies utilizing this test or offering it. And they say there's only one clinical trial, but we're using it to this much. And then they they talk about the, the JAMA trial that came from our group. And then importantly, they point out a study that wasn't in this meta-analysis because it was in 2022, so it was after they did the lit search. But Cozzolino actually found worse outcomes if you did the ERA after a single failure. So is there a risk that we're actually shifting patients out of the normal window of implantation by doing a test that's not measuring what we think it's supposed to measure? And they have a, a little pun at the end just says, seems like we have not entered the ERA of enlightenment or the era of enlightenment, but all capitalized. So overall, I think a very nice meta-analysis. I do want to talk about including cohort trials with clinical trials and and the problems with that. First, I want to just hear what your thoughts were on on this paper and the topic in general.
2: I'm just scratching my head thinking, how much data do we need, both prospective data, observational data, and now high-quality systematic reviews and meta-analysis before we just stop using the ERA? I feel like the era that we're in now is we're all trying to find secondary and tertiary indications for it oh, it's only for patients with thin linings. Oh, it's only for patients who have an autoimmune disorder and you may be worried about the window of implantation. At some point, we got to cut it out as a field. And I don't know what paper does that for us, but this certainly continues to add to that body of evidence that it's probably not it's doing what we think it needs to be doing.
4: We've talked about this before, Pietro and Eve, that you know, everybody really wants this to work because it just really helps in our field. We want something that will help our patients and If it doesn't hurt, you can always point to the anecdote of it working in some people. So that's why it's so hard to get rid of. But unfortunately, I think we've reached a point where there really isn't any data to support it. And all we're doing is adding cost and um, intervention.
3: Yeah, I mean, my least favorite indication, and I see this all the time is a gestational carrier that before we do a GC cycle, we're going to do a mock cycle with an ERA. And I was recently in my role with the Chicago Coalition for Family Building was reviewing charges for one of our recipients. And they were asking for $4,400 for a mock cycle with ERA. And I'm just flabbergasted that that is a thing, that that is an indication for an ERA. Um, And certainly in a limited resource setting, we denied, you know, we denied coverage for that. But it's just shocking to me that that is still an indication despite all of the data. So Pietro, I'm on your team. It's like how we have an RCT, we have excellent retrospective study, we have data from the creators of the test, like show me data that says that it works. Um, and I may change my tune, but to date I'm just not convinced.
1: Yeah, I agree with that, even I think the the challenge though overall as a field, we're kind of on the opposite side. Show me, prove to me that it doesn't work, and then I'll stop using it. That's you know, endometrial scratch. Um, now this that sometimes we're at that point because of what Kurt said. It's not out of malicious intent in most cases, I think. It's just the patient wants anything, they want to do anything, and we want to do anything that we can. So more is better, maybe not, maybe not when we're talking about the ERA.
4: Yeah, I don't wanna be cynical that more is better because you get paid for it, but that may be part of it too. But let's take the point you said for Brandon, convince me that it doesn't work. So this meta-analysis does have some flaws, not malicious flaws because of the authors, but because it's hard to synthesize data that's difficult to synthesize. And, and the biggest one is when you synthesize cohort studies. And the, the reason is, is that each cohort study, if you think about it as a sampling of a, of the truth, might be biased in a slightly different way. That's the problem with cohort. And then when you put them together, you're actually moshing all the biases. It's it's not like cohort A is biased in one way, cohort B might be biased in another way. And by putting together, you're not getting a closer synthesis of the truth. You're, you're getting noise. So that's one criticism of the meta-analysis. Like uh, Having said that, they did as they could with the data they had, and you still don't find an area, but I just wanted to point out limitations. Another one is they are, mixing methods. There is one paper there that's not ERA. It's it's an endometrial receptivity assay. It's just not the same test. So you can make an argument that you're you know comparing products. But these are very small methodologic details that we should talk about in journal clubs and on podcasts. But you know when you step back and look at the forest, I just don't see any evidence that's that's glaring that says that this is an effective test.
3: I guess my question, Micah, and maybe this is more for our learners in the audience, is, is it legitimate to do a meta-analysis and include studies other than RCTs?
1: Yeah, thanks, Eve. I appreciate that. I'll give my two cents, and then I'm I'm curious what Kurt thinks. Uh, The first is that there's not a right or a wrong answer, and it's something that's debated. I personally um, only do meta-analyses with uh, clinical trials because of what Kurt's talking about, and I just haven't learned how to do Well, independent patient meta-analysis, it's hard to get the data, and I haven't learned how to do more advanced um, Bayesian or meta-regression stuff to try to control for these confounders, which maybe could have been done in in this case. But no, I I won't combine them for all the reasons Kurt said. You can't control for that bias. And actually, the authors and their methods said each paper adjusted for bias, or the majority of the papers adjusted for bias, right? Meaning each paper did logistic regression, let's say. Yeah, but the problem is you're taking the raw data out of the table and you can just look at the raw data in the tables from the uh, source papers, which I did. And they're the exact same numbers of the raw data that were input into here. So you're not actually getting the benefit of the regression that each study did to try to account for that bias, which is why Kurt's saying it's just rolling on itself. And then, you know, the observational trials tend to be bigger and the meta-analysis is going to weight those more. So as an 1800 patient poor study uh, better than a 700-patient RCT? No, but it's going to get more weight in a in a meta-analysis. So personally, no. And given that we uh, just published on this topic, I looked at the data and decided I, I would not do a meta-analysis on this uh, like a year ago. But that's that's me. I do think it's helpful. I, Kurt, I'm letting the, the science wash over me. I think it's helpful in that I think this confirms what everything else is saying. And I agree with you. I nitpick on these things, but they're minor issues, and I don't think they would change the output significantly if they did all these things perfectly the way I would want it done, which is just my preference.
4: Yeah, I think you said that really well. As, as a clinician, I think the message here is that there is really no obvious benefit or demonstrated benefit of the ERA working. As a methodologist, you can find a lot of problems in here. But again, just flick flipping it on its head, just by staying there potential problems with the way you combine the data doesn't mean there were problems with combining the data. So we just have to Take this with a little grain of salt. Let it flow over you. You know, there's a lot of data here that synthesizes nicely for you, and I hope it changes some opinions, even though it's not the perfect analysis.
1: If there's anything I've taken away from the last year, Kurt, it's exactly that. I once had a fellow, Carter Owen, who I actually did her residency at Penn with you guys, and then was my fellow, who at the end of her residency or fellowship said, don't we ever have any good articles at all in REI? Like, we bashed them all for three years. I was like, okay, need to need to make sure we're emphasizing the positive and why we even have a journal in the first place and what's important about these. So you've taught me that well, my friend. So I, I appreciate that over this last year.
4: Well, since we're talking about fellow anecdote, I had Ike Sasson as as a fellow, and he said to me. In the middle of his fellowship. Why is it that, that you're only teaching me what not to do? When are we going to find out what we can do and what works? I like
3: it. I know how my fellows are going to be quoting me in years to come.
1: <laughs> and now it looks like we're moving on to epidemiology and Eve, it's you. We're talking about sleep and outcomes with pregnancy. I think something from the Eager trial, maybe.
3: Yeah, this is really interesting. So the title of this paper is preconception sleep duration, sleep timing and shift work in association with fecundability and live birth among women with a history of pregnancy loss with Josh Freeman and senior author Sunny Mumford who were both at the NICHD at the time of this study. So the objective was to evaluate the association between preconception sleep characteristics such as sleep duration sleep timing, as well as shift work with fecundability and live birth. And you're right, this is a secondary analysis of the EAGER trial, the effects of aspirin in gestation and reproduction. They had women who were ages 18 to 40 with a history of one to two prior losses who had an intact uterus, normal fallopian tubes and ovaries, regular cycles who were actively trying to conceive and women were randomized to aspirin versus placebo and then followed up for six cycles of medically unassisted conception. They looked at sleep characteristics, looking at typical bedtime, wake time. And then sleep onset latency, or how long it takes you to fall asleep. And these were measured at baseline. And the issue, I think, here, and we'll talk more about this later, was via self-report for both weekdays and weekends. And then using these characteristics, the authors calculated sleep duration, sleep midpoint, and uh, social jet lag, which I've been paying attention to in my own schedule. Social jet lag is the discrepancy in your typical sleep timing between work days and free days. In addition, patients were asked whether they worked overnight shifts And then the authors assessed fecundability, the per cycle probability of pregnancy, as time to pregnancy, which was measured in the discrete number of menstrual cycles required to achieve a positive pregnancy test for up to six cycles of consecutive follow-up. They also looked at things like smoking status, marijuana, opioid use, and antidepressant metabolites, and these were measured from urine samples that were collected at baseline. Sleep characteristics were measured both as categorical and continuous exposures, and they categorized sleep duration as less than six hours, six to less than seven, seven to less than eight, eight to less than nine, and over nine. And then social jet lag was less than an hour, one to two hours, or more than two hours. And then this concept of sleep midpoint, which is the halfway point between when you fall asleep and when you wake up was looked at in tertiles. And that's how you decide if somebody is like an evening person or a morning person. And they called that tertile one, two, and three. And then rotating shift work and night shift work were assessed as binary exposures. So I thought this was fascinating. The authors hypothesized that extremes of sleep duration, later sleep midpoints, greater social jet lag, and shift work would be associated with lower fecundability and probability of live birth, which I think is a reasonable hypothesis. When they looked at their population, they found that, not surprisingly, women who had children already were more likely to sleep less than six hours. And I don't think any of our listeners are going to be shocked by this. Women who slept longer than nine hours were younger, had lower BMI lower education, and were more likely to use marijuana and antidepressants. And over one third of women had greater than an hour of social jet lag. But was sleep actually related to outcomes? What they found was that women who slept greater than or equal to nine hours did not have lower fecundability than women who slept seven to less than eight hours. And they found that continuous sleep duration was not associated with fecundability. And then when the authors did a sensitivity analysis and excluded women who reported shift work, they observed a stronger magnitude of association for sleep greater than nine hours and lower fecundability. But neither rotating schedules nor shift work was associated with fecundability, and social jet lag was also not associated with lower fecundability in any of their modeling. And what they said overall is that preconception measures of sleep duration, shift work, and sleep timing were all not associated with the probability of live birth. So I think like on the surface, fascinating But my biggest criticism of the study, and I am going to give a shout out to our fellow at Northwestern, Sarah Capelluto, who has really turned me on to sleep tracking, which is like a whole different ballgame in terms of looking at how much you actually sleep. They use subjective sleep measures. And I will tell you personally from somebody who has now been tracking my sleep for over six weeks, that it's not just time that you sleep, it's quality. And I think people greatly overestimate the amount they sleep because the amount of time that you spend in bed is not the amount of time that you're sleeping. And so I think there's so much more here. And we have to look at these data in a different way or we have to do a trial in a different way. And I I think this is a lot of fertile ground for future research. Um, And full disclosure, it is something that we are looking at at Northwestern.
2: There's so much opportunity here to take this a step further and actually do the a prospective study with some of the tech that's out there. The wearables, the the apps, the rings, there are so many things that can speak to your point, Eve, about quality of sleep and time spent in REM versus non-REM sleep, uh, just activity in bed. This question deserves to be answered. I'm so glad that there are actually people who are chasing this further rather than doing a secondary analysis of this data, because I agree with you. Self-reported sleep, I probably overestimate my sleep all the time. But there's a lot of Netflix in there, and there's a lot of scrolling through Twitter in there um, that doesn't necessarily count towards my sleep-wake times.
4: This is a great example of starting with epidemiologic data and giving some nice, reassuring data on a macro level. But it doesn't allow you to get into the specifics. I think sleep apnea is going to be a big deal. I think quality of sleep is going to be a big deal. So while this is reassuring to populations, we do have to, you know, drill down to the individual to see, you know, which aspects can be diagnosed and helped. Great. Thank you.
1: Pietro, we're going to you next. We're staying in this same section. What do you have?
2: Just want to start off with a big shout out to our Scandinavian colleagues for continuously putting out some really outstanding population-based cohort data this month's FNS has an article entitled, Risk of Stillbirth and Neonatal Death in Singleton Births After Fresh and Frozen Embryo Transfers, that utilized data from the Committee of Nordic ART, ART and Safety, or CONERTES. It's well established that singletons conceived after fresh and frozen embryo transfers are at increased risk for adverse perinatal outcomes, like placenta spectrum disorder, growth restriction, and some newer data has also suggested that the risk of perinatal mortality may also be higher after any ART intervention. But no studies have really parsed out the question of stillbirth versus neonatal death, and none have also taken into account the relative contribution of preterm birth to this excess risk of neonatal death in ART-conceived pregnancies. The authors of this study looked at data from Norway, Sweden, and Denmark that linked birth registry data with national ART registries between 1988 and 2015, a big period of time in which a lot of ART things changed, notably how we cryopreserved embryos, and a lot of the medications we were using to support luteal phases. They compared rates of stillbirth and neonatal death between singletons conceived after both fresh and frozen embryo transfers as well as pregnancies conceived without ART. In total, and here's the jaw-dropping number, as always from these Scandinavian studies, 4.5 million singleton births were available for analysis, of which 17,000 pregnancies resulted in stillbirth and 7,500 resulted in neonatal death rate of 0.4% and 0.17% respectively. The big finding of this paper is that the authors found no association between the mode of conception and the risk of stillbirth. That's good. However, neonatal mortality was higher after both fresh and frozen embryo transfers compared to those without ART. Now, you may be wondering, what do I do with this data? And I think here are my big takeaways. Stillbirth is a terrible event. And if If ever asked by a woman from Norway, Denmark, or Scandinavia, if their risk is higher with fresh or frozen um, embryo transfers compared to non-ART conceptions, this data can help you say, it appears not. So if asked by the same group of women if neonatal mortality is higher, this data suggests that, yeah, it probably is. But I think intuitively we know that neonatal mortality is a fairly heterogeneous outcome in its etiology, with preterm birth being a large driver of neonatal mortality. Also, neonatal mortality rates in Scandinavia are much lower than they are in the U.S. and a lot of the rest of the developed world. So really not a helpful finding for patients being counseled by us here in the United States. But again, if you're in Scandinavia and someone's asking you, you have this data to help that. While this data won't change your practice, it in some ways confirms some previous smaller observational studies with regard to neonatal mortality and refutes other observational studies that have previously found higher rates of stillbirth in ART-conceived pregnancies. Now, beyond this finding, I just really want to make a point that I'm really jealous that these countries are able to collect this kind of data at scale via linkage of ART and birth registry data. We have a bit of that in the U.S., particularly the work from the folks in Massachusetts that have looked at uh, birth registry and ART data, which is, I think, continuously put out some really outstanding papers that we've published here in FNS. But boy, could we use some more of that. And I'd really love to figure out how in the U.S. we can get there because a data set with four and a half million um, outcomes is um, pretty powerful. We can do a lot of uh, inherent fertility estimating, Kurt, I think, in that kind of data.
3: I really like this paper, but I'm always hearing Kurt's voice in my head saying, you just like the papers that confirm your hunches. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my, only, that's my only disclosure with that is, yeah, I think that there is something to be said about fresh embryo transfer and preterm delivery. And we know that the largest risk of preterm delivery is neonatal death. And so I think it's intuitive and it supports how we counsel patients.
4: So Pietro, thank you for that paper. I have a similar paper that also it's just amazing the, the kind of work that can be done when you organize societies and have national registries. Uh, this particular study that I'm going to talk about, assisted reproductive technology treatment and the risk of multiple sclerosis, a, a Danish cohort study, has similar advantages. They have a they have an MS registry and they have a registry of all the people of all the births and IVFs. It's it's really amazing um, to see this kind of work. So this one is kind of niche, but I, but I find it really fascinating. So multiple sclerosis is a chronic autoimmune disease affecting the CNS, demyelinization. But it's one of the many diseases I learned in medical school that affects women predominantly. And it's interesting. And we think somehow it's hormonally based without really knowing what that word hormonally based means. So the, the introduction basically says that we know that MS, for, for whatever reason, decreases during pregnancy and dramatically in the third trimester, but there's very clinically significant rebounds postpartum. And people have hypothesized that you can get that same kind of rebound after IVF, given that there's a high estrogen or hormonal component and then people rebound. So this study attempted to look at that hypothesis. And I'm, again, I'm quite jealous. They have you know more than a half a million women who conceived a pregnancy uh, with and without ART and um, 63,000 of them had ART on their first pregnancy and they were able to compare multiple sclerosis First of all, it struck me a little bit. Sixty-three thousand women with ART represents eleven percent of the population in Denmark. Maybe that it's higher than I thought, but eleven percent sounds pretty high. So they're able to follow these women for a number of years, and just for the sake of time, you know, what they found was, in the crude analysis, there seemed to be no association with the use of ART and multiple sclerosis recurrence or flare. And this paper is a model in against statistical confounding or assessing for statistical confounding. They perform subgroup analyses, they perform something called intention to treat, they perform propensity scores, and all of these methods for controlling for these multiple factors show a null effect, in fact, 1.01. So basically, I have a hypothesis, and they disproved it. So again, disproving one of my favorite cliches, that anecdote that we see occasionally, the plural of anecdote is not data. Now, if you want to get into the statistics a little bit, very briefly, again, it, it's like our paper we talked about before, there's multiple ways of trying to control for ter- confounding. The sensitivity analysis are very important. Propensity score basically takes um, a lot of all the women in cohort and say, what's your propensity for getting the exposure? In this case, undergoing ART. Um, and then you can take only those women and compare them directly to see the outcome. It limits your, your sample size, but it takes away a lot of the confounding due to other reasons. The point I wanted to make was even with very fancy propensity scoring, they're still not able to control for the differences in age, which shows you that not every method of confounding controls all of your confounding. Although it didn't change the answer, it shows you why you need to really look at this problem. And finally, for those that pay attention to this, how do you do an intention to treat analysis in a cohort study? That's usually reserved for randomized trials, meaning keeping them in the arm that you gave them the medication. So um, intention to treat in cohorts is becoming more and more prevalent. I see it more and more in paper. And basically saying you establish the cohort at a certain age, and then you follow that woman continuously through whether she changes her exposure or has more than one exposure. For in this case, you thought she was going to have ART, but then she had a baby without ART or vice versa. And that's another way of, again, controlling for this confounding. And again, it showed no difference. So I'm glad these epidemiologic studies are are getting into our field. I'm glad we can have some confidence that we're finding null effects, and I'm glad null effects are being um, published in the literature. And again, it's wonderful to that uh, we're getting world war data that we can learn from.
2: I mean, just how powerful from a patient counseling perspective, when you actually have the patient with MS in front of you who's thinking about cycling, you can say, well, our colleagues in Scandinavia looked at this, and they looked at 60,000 women with MS who are about to undergo what you're about to undergo, And found that it probably didn't impact your MS flare or recurrence risk. That's just so cool. I love papers like this in FNS.
1: I had the same thought that you were just saying, Kurt, for this month. There's a lot of null papers. And a little bit disproves the uh, old adage that you have to look for a positive finding in your data to get it published. I I feel like it's the opposite. Null findings can be very, very impactful and important in our field. And I I think the quality of the articles we're talking about today that have relatively null findings uh, illustrate that very nicely.
4: To emphasize that the quality of the studies that convince you that the finding is no, not just, I found a no finding. You have to really interrogate it, look yeah. at it multiple ways to make sure you're getting the same answer. And then you can have confidence that that the answer is no. Absolutely. Well said.
1: Eve, we have one left on physical intimate partner violence. So tell us about this article.
3: Yeah. Thanks, Micah. This is um, a really well done study. It's, it's, very disturbing. So trigger warning for anyone who gets triggered with discussion of intimate partner violence. The title of this is Physical Intimate Partner Violence Among Women Reporting Prior Fertility Treatment Survey of U.S. Postpartum Women. And the first author was Jereen Morris with Jennifer Kwas and Heather Hip. The objective of this study was to determine the prevalence of physical intimate partner violence among postpartum women reporting preconception fertility treatment compared with those who conceived without the use of assisted reproduction. And just note, I kind of stressed postpartum because you're looking at a population of patients who had fertility treatment who ultimately conceived. So more on this later. Infertility is a suggested predictor of intimate partner violence, and intimate partner violence is defined as threatened, attempted, or completed physical or sexual violence and emotional abuse, which is inflicted by a spouse, ex-spouse, current or former partner, or a date. This was a retrospective, cross-sectional, population-based study and assessed Only physical intimate partner violence, not emotional nor sexual. Data from the PRAMS, which is Pregnancy Risk Assessment Monitoring System, was used in this study. PRAMS is is a surveillance system managed by the CDC in conjunction with state health departments, and they identify populations at risk for increased infant morbidity and mortality. So, postpartum women across participating states who had a recent live birth were randomly selected to receive a questionnaire that assessed maternal attitudes and experiences before, during, and shortly after pregnancy. And then these data were linked to extracted birth certificate data. The study aimed to determine the prevalence of women reporting previous fertility treatment exposure and physical intimate partner violence among a sample of recently postpartum women from 2009 to 2019. Women who answered yes to the questions affirming either that in the 12 months before pregnancy or during pregnancy that their husband or partner pushed, hit, slapped, kicked, choked, or physically injured them were considered to have had physical intimate partner violence. There were almost 44,000 women included in this study, and the overall prevalence of reported fertility treatment exposure was 12.6%. So approximately 2% of the respondents reported physical intimate partner violence before, during, or after their most recent pregnancy, with increased odds of violence occurring in those under 30, those who identified as non-Hispanic, Black, or Hispanic, unmarried, obese, had 12 or fewer years of education, endorsed tobacco use in the three months before pregnancy, were recipients of Medicaid or uninsured and earned a household income well under the federal poverty level. Postpartum women who reported fertility treatment exposure before their most recent pregnancy were less likely to endorse physical intimate partner violence than those who did not report exposure to fertility treatment. And so in this study, the authors found that fertility treatment exposure was not associated with intimate partner violence. So, First, again, I really want to commend the authors on this study. I think it is a terrific use of surveillance data, and I'm sure this project was a massive undertaking given the sheer numbers of patients. And I think it's a really interesting study, and it really made me think. And on first glance, I thought, wow, this is reassuring. Our patients are safer than that of the general population. But as I thought further about it, I realized that the postpartum surveillance introduces significant bias that I'm not sure I can get past. So the study tells us that infertility patients who are successful and who have had a baby have lower intimate partner violence. But it doesn't tell us anything about those patients who are not successful. And if stress is significantly associated with intimate partner violence, I really worry about the stress of unsuccessful fertility treatment. Um, And this is what we're seeing, but I really question, like, what are we not seeing that's out there? And are we making assumptions that don't really exist towards our patient population? Additionally, this is physical intimate partner violence and not emotional or sexual. So I think it's a glimpse and it's by no means uh, definitive. And so I really would um, encourage further research on this topic. And I think at the very least, I know that on our paperwork, we ask patients about intimate partner violence but I do think it is an important thing to screen for in our entire population because our patients are at risk. And finally, I want to point the readers to the thoughtful reflection by Seth Barshansky from George Washington and Angela Lawson, my colleague at Northwestern, if you want to read some insightful comments about this manuscript. So very uncomfortable topic, but a really well-done study. And I think that again, just answers a few questions. But to me, it left me asking more than answered. And that's a really depressing note to end our podcast on. So <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's such
1: an important topic. So I, I actually I wanted to ask Kurt. Um, so, you know, what do you think about an article like this? Obviously, you, you know, you accepted it and published it in the journal. Why, why did you think this was important for our audience with fertility and sterility?
4: I applaud research like that. Sometimes research is done on uncomfortable topics, but we need we need to face those topics and we need to face those topics with good information and good data rather than just bury them or pretend they don't exist. So hard to listen to, but I hope it in the long run helps.
3: Yeah, I think, again, I, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer here, but... I really think that you can't take this paper at face value and you can't say that women are not at risk for intimate partner violence or that infertility patients are not at risk for intimate partner violence. I think it's a fair point that in the postpartum population, those patients reported less intimate partner violence, but I don't think that that lets our patients off the hook.
1: All right. Wonderful discussion today. It was so good to see all four of you. Kurt, we do have a lot of good content that we didn't get to cover today, as always. One of them is a research letter talking about intrauterine fluid with an isthmus seal. What is a research letter? That's a new addition to the journal, isn't it?
4: Yeah, thanks for pointing that out, Micah. Research letters are kind of a new wave in publishing by many journals, and and luckily also uh, fertility and sterility as well. So a research letter is really a very concise focus report but it is original research. So it could be a very specific finding. It could be a sub-analysis that wasn't previously published. It could be an idea that you can just say concisely. It's not a review. It's not a case report. It's not um, editorial content, but um, it basically allows rapid dissemination of very specific findings. It is a full publication in FNS. It it has all of the gravitas, FNS, the the social media, the, the potential discussions like on this podcast, and a full citation. So, I encourage people to either submit them primarily, or sometimes you might get a letter from me saying that perhaps your paper, while we really like it, is better rewritten be as a research letter, thus allowing it to get into the journal, whereas it might have been turned away for other reasons.
1: Great. Thank you, Kurt. And this one, like you said, it has the full gravitas of an FNS publication. It even has a reflection, and I'm jealous because this was a great title, Mind the Gap, Eels and Infertility. So a very good title uh, to Dr. Morris. Congratulations on your commentary. We also have video articles. There are four of them this month. Uh, One is hysteroscopic approach to a missed pregnancy loss. So uh, a good video that you can show your colleagues if they have not done one of these before uh, to try to minimize trauma to the uterus instead of the old-fashioned DNC. Great articles as always. Kurt, Eve, Pietro, I love the discussion. It was great seeing you. And we'll be back again next month.
4: Yeah, this was a good one. I enjoyed this. Good science, good findings. I, I, I hope you all enjoyed it.
3: Great conversation. So thanks all.
4: We'll see
1: you in March.
0: This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility On Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect Fertility and Sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.